Patriot fans in the uh, sanctuary this morning. All right. All right. Well. It's a little troubling to me. It's a little troubling to me that you get more excited over the New England Patriots than Jesus. But we'll talk about that. We will talk about that another. But I hope you have a... I hope you have a fun weekend. Just a couple of quick announcements. On Wednesday, we had a pastor's day, a pastor's learning day scheduled. Some pastors were going to, over 40, or close to 40 pastors were scheduled to join us for, join us for chapel and then a luncheon and then an afternoon seminar. And um, unfortunately, we rescheduled it for today, so many can't be here. But we do have several with us today. Could we welcome the pastors that are joining us today from around the Northeast? And just to let the pastors know, our next session immediately following chapel at 1130 will be an angel building. There's a PV lecture hall at the, in the basement of angel. That's where we'll be meeting. And then we'll go up, go up for lunch uh, after that. And then the afternoon lecture. Um, a student had uh, spoken to me at a campus conversation and had given me some very, very important advice and a suggestion, which I greatly appreciate. And I want to take an opportunity to talk about it here for a moment. I talked about some hot topic issues in chapel the first uh, two times that I spoke this semester. And it was suggested to me that maybe I remind the community that uh, we have what's called an amnesty policy. Uh, that if you are struggling or, or battling any type of addiction or struggling in life and you don't know where to turn or you feel you'll get in trouble if, you, uh, if someone finds out. Actually, we have a policy in place if you come to the chaplain's office or student development that it's amnesty. There, no one gets in trouble. Uh, what we're trying to do is help you and uh, encourage you and extend grace and mercy. So it was important, and I want to thank that student for sharing that with me so I could say it to you this morning, that we're here to help you. No one wants to get you in trouble on anything. Uh, we just want you to find freedom and hope and healing and anything that you may be struggling or wrestling with in life. So know about the amnesty policy. Secondly, also kind of similar, not, not really related, but it reminded me and I wanted to share with you this morning. Yesterday, I met with a group of students, completely unrelated issue. I went in to give a devotional, and uh, I shared with the students in the beginning, I, I apologized to them. I acknowledged and recognized that even though I've been here seven years to this group of students that I really feel like I as a chaplain. And it wasn't because I don't love them or care for them. It was just because, you know, just not knowing how to relate or connect. And so they didn't expect that or didn't ask for that, but they beautifully extended me grace and forgiveness and looking forward to our time together. And the same to you. I want you to know that even us uh, in the spiritual development office or student development or faculty, we understand that we don't always relate or get or understand all that you're going through or your styles or fashions. I understand you can't dress as cool as I do. I understand that. Uh, but please know that we love and care for you. We want a journey with you whatever, wherever you may find yourself in life. At the end of that time, as I expressed and asked for forgiveness, I went into a devotional. And it was just a three or four minute devotional. And just to show you how powerful the spirit was, at the end of that three or four minute devotional, everyone sitting in that devotional was sound asleep. They all fell asleep. So I took that as a compliment that they feel comfortable around me to fall asleep uh, while I'm sharing a devotional. So it was a great time. But I want to let you know and just remind you that we're here to journey with you. Well, we're going to worship together. It's been great to have Dr. Dan Boone, president of Trevecca Nazarene University, with us this week. Can you thank him again for coming up uh, during this winter storm? He shared, uh, I, I overheard him sharing with someone earlier. He has not seen this much snow in the last 10 years he's been in Nashville, Tennessee, which actually made me uh, not like him very much, actually, when he said that. Uh, but uh, so he still weathered the storm and came up to be with us, and we are grateful. So let us stand, and we'll open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father. We are grateful to gather in your name to worship you. 
And there's a lot of fun things that will take place this weekend. And uh, I pray that uh, we just have a great weekend and activities and uh, enjoying the Super Bowl together. And uh, may that all just be a great time for this city and this community. Uh, But we are also grateful, Lord, that we can come together in your name and worship you and sing praise to you. And clap our hands and sing uh, songs of joy. We are grateful. May we continually learn what it means to be a community looking out and caring for one another, loving one another. And of course, above all, loving and serving you. We pray these things now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said. I have my suspicions. I'm not sure I'm right, but I'm not sure I'm wrong either. I suspect that something is happening to the generation that is now in college. Something that my generation dumped on you. Something that the culture we all live is instilling in each one of us. Something that is eating away at the life that God intended for us. I have my suspicions that we are overconnected and it is making us restless, fragmented, distracted, and unfocused in every way. The world of gadgets has made you and I the center, or you and me, the center of the universe that we're living in right now. Uh, it, it somehow enables us to stand at a particular place and bring everything to us. Have you ever thought about why they named the stuff the way the thing they named it? The iPhone, the iPad, the iChat, uh, the iBooks, the iTunes, the iMovies, the iPod. Of everything, you know, this technology that starts with this little I and then it opens up to something else. The world of technology allows me to stand in one place and bring the world to me, literally revolve the world around me. With this, with this contraption right here, with this thing, I can stand in this spot and do things that could never be dreamed of a few decades ago. I become the center of my own universe, kind of like the center of a galaxy that I can orchestrate around me and cause the planets to circle and just move in some kind of order that's around there. I was thinking about this morning. Okay, here I stand. I no longer have to go to a store to shop for something. I can find it online, and I can actually have it delivered, if I want, to this very spot where I'm standing right now. Now, bring it to me, and I can pay for it while I'm doing that. I no longer need to go to a coffee shop to figure out what you're all about or to give a message to you. I can just stand right here and text it to you. I can skip looking into your dark brown eyes. I no longer need to go to the library. And touch books that generations of people have touched before or books that kind of crackle when you open them because they're brand new. I can just Google it and figure it out. Even on the way over here this morning, I'm passing three students on the sidewalk and one of them says, dude, I couldn't find it online. Have to go to the library. And, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, just, I'm on the way to talk about this. Y'all come with me this morning. Uh, I no longer have to go to a, to a movie to watch a story kind of unfold and then talk about it with the people I've gone with. I can stand right here and I I can watch an entire movie while I'm here. I don't have to go to a restaurant or cafeteria to eat. I I can order pizza, the kind of pizza I want, delivered to me on this very spot at this moment. I don't have to go to Barnes & Noble's to check out the new books that have come come out. I can browse them. I can even read a few pages, select without purchasing them. I don't even have to go to church anymore to hear a sermon. There are thousands of masterpieces already online, and I can just sit and watch them from wherever I am, however I want to. I 
can stand right here and demand that the world come to me. Let's do a let's just do a quick test uh, this morning. How many of you are on Facebook? Okay. Will everybody that's on Facebook stand? Okay. I just want you to stand. Okay. Now we're going we're going to do just a scientific experiment. Okay. Now if you have if you have less if you have less than two hundred and fifty friends, would you sit down? Less than two hundred and fifty. Less than five hundred. Less than a thousand. Less than fifteen hundred. Less than two thousand. Less than three thousand. Less than four thousand. Anybody else still standing? I win. I'm over 5,000. And it keeps bumping people out because 5,000 is kind of the limit, so they had to create a a fan page for me over here. Now, last night, Jimmy Kimmel, last night, Jimmy Kimmel says, there are more people on Facebook than there are in China, which makes the Facebook world the largest nation on the planet today. Connected. Connected. How many of you have unlimited text plans on your phone? Okay, I won't ask you to stand, but you have unlimited. Do you know what, and this statistic is a year old, do you know what the average number of texts sent by college students is per month? It's a year old. Okay, get this number. Uh, It blew me away. I didn't believe it. 1,742 texts per month sent by college students. Unless you think, unless you think this iWorld I'm talking about is only about college students, because I've been hanging around universities for the past 30 years and observing them carefully, the faculty and employees are in on this deal too. I mean, I'm watching professors that used to spend significant hours in offices and hallways and cafeterias at ball games and libraries I'm watching those same professors begin to work a lot more hours from home, not being very much face-to-face available. They are connected to the very people that they teach and to the work that they do by virtue of the iWorld that they, that they live in. The iWorld allows us to create life on our own terms. The reality is, if I don't like who I am, I can create an avatar. I can literally invent for myself a second life online if I want to, and I can be whatever I want to be. I can complain and gripe and criticize and smear other people without ever having to be in their presence and see what they respond to. I can unload my feelings out into space, and I can block people from challenging what I've said. I don't even have to hear criticism about the very things that I think and am saying. I can unleash distinctive and destructive words without seeing the hurt on another human face. I can have sexual thrills brought to me. I can talk with sexy people. I can watch people undress. And I can experience isolated sex without even knowing a person's name. I can be as violent as I want to be. 
I can play Halo, Grand Theft Auto, Alien, Blue Estate, Dark Souls, Wasteland. I can kill, blow up, annihilate. I can do all of that in the privacy of my own little iWorld circle without anybody else out there knowing at all. The iWorld has given me the capacity to sit isolated at the center of my own universe and to be connected in whatever ways I want to and demand other things to come to me, which is very interesting. A technology that actually was intended to save us time for play and relationships and joy and life. This technology has now become the addicting center of our life, and we are now spending more time attached and addicted to this than we ever have been to anything else in all of human history. I suggest that maybe we are over-connected. And the result of it is a life that is beginning to be more and more fragmented, uh, busy, fast, restless, and unfocused. Reports, uh, scientific reports, studies are beginning to come in on your generation, your iWorld generation that's there. A man named Tim Tim Elmore, who wrote the book IY Generation a few years ago, uh, he's just continued to study what this iWorld is, is doing, what kind of people are being formed by it. And he, sa- he says nine things about the generation college. Now, this stuff sounds really judgmental and cruel. And, uh, you know, you'll have to make up your... Matter of fact, I'll let you vote on it here at the end, whether you think it's true or not. But these are nine kind of nasty things that, that he says that research is beginning to say about your generation. One, you have miserable relational skills. Two, you have low EQ, emotional intelligence. You are bad at face-to-face interaction. Now, this is Tim. This is not me. I hadn't come here to dump all this stuff on you. You're bad at face-to-face interaction. Number four, you're short on patience, listening skills, and conflict resolution. Five, you spend very little time quietly reflecting on the person that you are becoming. Six, he says you are socially isolated and lethargic. Seven, that you are amazing multitaskers and lousy at focusing on one important thing. Eight, he says you want to be connected but not committed. And nine, you want to control your world. This is what Tim says the research is saying about the generation that is now in college. So I'm going to let you vote. I'm going to give you three categories, and you, you can just vote, okay? These are your three categories. He's mostly right. The second category will be, he's mostly wrong. And the third part, category will be, ah, he's partly right. Okay, so you get those. Uh, he's mostly right, mostly wrong, partly right. Okay, those three. Now, how many of you say, he's mostly right? Hands up. Uh, pretty strong. Okay, how many would say he's mostly wrong? Okay, handful. Yeah. How many would say he's partly right? Okay, well, apparently you're ag- agreeing with his obnoxious things that he's saying about you guys. Okay, I- I'm 30 years now. I'm 30 years serving on college campuses, and I can do something you can't do. I can compare you with other generations that I've watched do college. I mean, that's, uh, being old has a few advantages, and that's one of them. But you have nothing to compare the world you're living in with, because this is the only world you have ever known. You, you've not known other times when the I world uh, didn't exist. Uh, I have to admit to you, I mean, I'm ancient when it comes to this. In my college dorm, we had one phone. 
at the end of the hallway. I mean, you, you stood in line to, to ask a girl out on a date or, you know, to call home or to do, you stood in line and the community overheard you because they were in line waiting for their turn on that one single phone that we had. I mean, for us, the news, the whole world's news arrived at 5.30 p.m. on one of three channels that you could watch. And that's when you found out what happened all over the globe when I was in college. Uh, when I was in college, all the information, all the books were in the library, one building. And that building was the most packed, busy building on the campus. Uh, every, every afternoon and evening, I mean, to get a seat in there was just, it was really hard. Now, libraries are becoming obsolete on a lot of college campuses, and they're shrinking them. Because instead of stacks and stacks of books and stuff, you know, it's just all right here, and you can find it. Imagine this. When I was a college student, if I wanted to tell my girlfriend back home that I loved her, it took a letter three days to get there. I had to write that sucker, you know, mail it. I I even had to go to the post office to deliver it, to drop it off. And then three days later, and then she would read it, and I'm sitting there kind of sweating, wondering how she's responding to this letter that I've sent. i got to wait another three days before it gets back to me. I mean, a seven-day stretch to say, I love you, do you love me, and to find out. You guys go through four relationships in that time. Uh, And I, so I've, I just I have different fields of reference to actually compare all this stuff to. Now, um, we've handed you since you were a kid. We've handed you one gadget after another. I mean, we, uh, my daughter and son-in-law and their little two-year-old uh, girl named Rowan. She is a precious kid. Uh, are living with us now. They're building a home, and so they moved in with us while they're building their house. And Rowan and I are we're just soulmates. Two years old, she got her grandmother's iPad the other day and FaceTimed me. Two years old, she figured out how to FaceTime me here in Boston because she missed me. And, you know, when she was done with the conversation, she knew the button to push that was it. I mean, I'm just going, two years old. I, I go to lunch now with people that have kids and because the adults want to have a conversation and kids are kind of squirrely, I mean, restless, unfocused, not interested in this stuff y'all are talking about, what do we do? We, we hand them our iPhone and they play games on it so that they can leave the world of this conversation going on and do something they're interested in. I mean, just imagine what kind of people are being formed in some of these practices. Now, I may sound like a grumpy old man to you that just wants to go back to yesteryear. I don't. I love my iPhone. I love my iPad. You know, I spent about an hour and a half yesterday just getting connected to your secure service here uh, on the university. Because your guest wireless is not good. But the other one worked perfect. I mean, it was great. So I, I, I enjoyed the capacity to be connected. I literally was able to do my job in Nashville yesterday because I had one of these that connected me to all of that from here. But I think it's time for us to ask some very serious questions. How is the iWorld shaping us?
What kind of humans are actually being formed? And does God have anything to say into this or about this? I really believe God does. I think God is is trying to say some very important things into this culture and the way it's being shaped. In the words of 1 John chapter 1, the writer declares this. He says, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and have touched with our hands. We declare to you the word of life. And he is talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. The gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and lived among us. He's writing about a God who became flesh, became skin and bones, teeth and toenails, and walked among us. This Jesus, this is the heart of the Christian gospel. This Jesus is the definition of what it means to be fully human. You want to know what human means, look it up in the dictionary. You'll find a picture of Jesus there. Jesus is the definition of what it means to be fully human. The bumper stickers that say, um, forgive me, I've sinned, I'm only human. Lousy bumper stickers. To sin is to be subhuman. To be subhuman. To be human is to be like Jesus in every way, in every aspect that is possible. Jesus is that definition. He is life, creator, sustainer, giver of life. I love it how Paul in Colossians says that Jesus is the center of the universe and that He is the glue that holds things together. And in Him, all things are held together. He is in the middle of it. I was thinking about this this morning and I remembered that, that song. Forgive me, I've got a lousy voice, but the song goes, You're the center of the universe. Everything was made in you, Jesus. Breath of every living thing. Everyone was made for you. You hold everything together. You hold everything together. And then it has that prayer. Oh Christ, be the center of our lives. Be the place we fix our eyes. Be the center of our lives. Do you begin to detect... Uh, I sing lousy. Do you, do you detect the difference between... Standing here with my eye world, the world is revolving around me. I can call everything to serve me. I can control the universe from here. And the idea that my life is a part of a body of people who are centered around Christ. And the movement of my life is a movement around who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in a world like this. Jesus calls into existence in this world a people called the church. The body of Christ. And many of you are it. You are the body of Christ in this world, connected to a people called church. And you center your life in Christ. You know, you're at a phenomenal university. I just want to compliment and commend you on your choice to be here at Eastern. I mean, this is a great place. Every, uh, every week, something happens on this campus called chapel. And from dorms and offices and libraries and gyms and cafeterias and classrooms and, you know, all, all of a sudden it's like there's a magnet right here, right here. 
And people start coming together. And we coalesce here in a chapel. A part of what makes this a Christian university is the fact that at the center of its life is a gathering of people in an event that is centered on God and on His Christ. And that we come together to hear and to think about what it means for us to be truly Christian in this place. So here's our choice. Me with my iWorld center building my own universe and Christ at the center beginning to connect us. Let me give you just one illustration of how I think the iWorld is just, just literally destroying uh, us in ways. Pornography is the saddest thing, just the saddest thing in the world to me. Uh, I'm in the, I've just finished a book on human sexuality, and the chapter on pornography, many times, it just brought grief. I mean, just deep grief to me. Because digital sexual gratification is the practice and the habit of turning human beings into objects that I can use however I want to in my mental studio. It's using other people for pleasure without touching them, knowing them, or talking with them. We master the art of turning a person into a thing which cripples our capacity to love and makes us lousy lovers. We are rehearsing being horrible at loving another human being. The love we are meant for is the kind of love that sounds like 1 John, the kind of love that looks into a face, that hears someone's story, that learns to adjust to who they are, that shares their pain, that touches a hand, uh, that makes promises and keeps them, that respects boundaries, that finds intimate joy in covenanted relationship. The kind of love we are meant for is a love that draws us together, not in a controlling way, not in a managing way, not in a way that says, I stand here and you exist to pleasure me, but in a way that says, you are my brother or sister in Christ and we are to be connected and our lives centered on Him and our relationships centered on Him in a way that is whole and life-giving and breathing and freeing and dignifying and enriching and meaningful. The I world says you exist for my consumption. Jesus says, I am formed that I might be your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your date, your friend, your spouse. So what do we do? What do we do? I just want to close this morning with three things. I think Scott Daniels says it well. Scott was here, I think, a revival or two ago. Uh, my dear, dear friend. I love his sentence. He says, a holy life takes practices. Not a holy life takes practice. A holy life takes practices. There are things that we must consistently do if our life is to be marked by sanctity and holiness and beauty and truth and love and joy and all these great, great things. And and I'll just mention three of them very briefly. The first, the practice of holy conversation. The practice of holy conversation. Do you belong to a group of people who gets together often enough to have long, serious talks about the things that matter most. That's what holy conversation is. A, a consistent group of people and friends that you know and know you and you're together often enough, long enough, that you can go down a path and really explore that path and think about that path and ask questions about that path. 
And that you can become reflective. You can hear who you are becoming and you can see who they are becoming. And they can challenge what you are and you can challenge what they are. That's what holy conversation is. John Wesley, an ancient Christian leader, he talked about holy conversation as a critical piece to the development of a life that has, that has sanctity about it, a life of beauty and grace. Holy conversation. Is that a practice in your life? Now, there's all kind of names for it. Small group Bible study, a gang of guys in the dorm that gets together every Tuesday night at midnight, Sunday school class. I mean, there are all kind of ways that you can do it. A coffee shop, book club. There's all kind of ways to do it. But those gatherings are disappearing in the I world because we want to bring what we want to us to serve us instead of going and laying our life out in the middle of a group of friends so that they had the capacity to challenge what we are becoming. Holy conversation is practice. Second practice I just mentioned is Sabbath. Sabbath. The whole idea that there's six of these kind of days and then there's one of these kind of days. You know, Monday to Saturday and then there's the Sunday. Sabbath. The, the word itself means stop, quit, cease, desist. That's what the word means. It's just a word that means you've done this for six days. Stop and recalibrate your life, recenter your life. A few years ago, I was teaching a spiritual formation class at one of our universities, and I, I asked the students in there if they were willing to do a, uh, an experiment that semester. And so they took me up on it. So we divided class in half. Half practiced Sabbath and half didn't. Now, the ones who practiced Sabbath, uh, no homework, no, uh, no labor work, no going out and making a buck, uh, no consuming kind of habits or practices. We just sort of designed it. You could play ball, take walks, be with friends, eat a lot, go to church, uh, read a book that wasn't for homework credit or anything, um, you know, write a letter, you know, just play your guitar, you know, this is the stuff you could do. Anything that enriched you and was playful and rejoicing and uh, reflective, you, know, you, you can do that. And the rest of the group do whatever you want to. Make it like any other day in the week. And they went through an entire semester. And then I had them journal their experience. It was amazing. The group that had practiced Sabbath that entire semester, you know what they said? They said, my grades improved. My friendships improved. I was less nervous about stuff. Stress went away. I didn't gain any weight uh, I, you know, and I'm going, what's that? And I think it's anxiety that numbs itself by going to the cafeteria and just stuffing a lot of food down because I'm so busy and I don't know what to do, but I can control food. So I'm, do, I'm doing this. Guy. So, so, and these guys over here, and just, so they're talking about this. And the other group, as they're listening to these guys present their findings across the semester, they're going, man, my life, my life was totally in the opposite direction. The simple practice of once every seven days just stopping. I started doing that recently with the iWorld. I started, I don't, I'm not perfect at it, and I'm not legalistic about it, but I'm just kind of turning this stuff off on Sunday morning and like going through that whole day. And you know what? It's still here on Monday. I hadn't lost anything. Matter of fact, I haven't had anything that I was notified of or happened to me on one of those Sabbath days from the iWorld that, that it was critical that I missed. I mean, just Sabbath. It's a practice you may want to really think about. 
that you would instill at the core of your life an ancient biblical practice that says this will make you more human. It will cause you to remember that you are the playful child of a beloved God who wants to give you the gift of a day where you don't have to create the world. You can actually enjoy the world that he has created. So the practice of Sabbath. Third and final practice I'll mention. Uh, oh, and let me just mention too, while, while we're on Sabbath, it's the idea of like laying aside stuff. This afternoon at 2.30, um, there is a, uh, there's a lecture that I'm doing called uh, The Language of Abstinence. Chapel credit is given. I know that's big. That's really big. But 2.30, it's in Schrader Lecture Hall. And I want to talk about the kind of language we use about detaching from things instead of attaching to things, detaching. Absence. We talk a lot about sexual absence, absence from alcohol, stuff like that. So I want to talk about the biblical language and how it can be really bad and how it might be really good. Uh, so 2.30 this afternoon, you want to get on that. It's kind of like practicing Sabbath where we give up some stuff. The third and final one I want to mention is this one. The practice of reflective silence. I Can I confess to you? When I get quiet now, because so many things are revolving around the job that I have, I change hats about every five minutes. I mean, it's just, it's this mental assault of detail that's just coming all the time. When I get quiet, all that stuff goes haywire inside my brain. And my gut tells me that's true for your generation too. The very minute you turn all noise off and you get in a quiet place and are not distracted by anything, it's like the seawall broke. And here comes everything that the storm of chaos that your life is in. It just all comes rushing in. And you know what I found? I have to be quiet for about 10 or 15 minutes before that stuff finally calms down. And will give me just a few minutes apiece to actually do something. So as, as we close out this morning, I, I just want, I want to do something. Uh, you're going to be hearing uh, some music. Christ will be the center of our life. Um, I want you to kind of practice for a moment. Can, can you, if you get quiet, what happens in your brain? If you get quiet and try to just sort of center and focus on God for a moment and listen If you get quiet, notice what happens. If everything starts pouring in over the seawall of your silence, everything starts coming in, I think what it's saying to you is that this I world is doing a number on you that is robbing from you the very capacity to live a life that is centered in God, attentive to God, focused on God, reflective of God. I'm trying to fight back. And I, and I say that with a, with a deep sense of journeying with you. I think something's happening in our world that is robbing us of a quality of life that I have known and tasted throughout my life. And it is sweet and rich and good. And I have a harder and harder and harder time breaking through all of this stuff to be able to reflect on the life that God has called me to and who I am. And if I'm struggling with that, having tasted it before, you who've only lived in a world where we handed you gadgets, 
I cannot imagine the challenge that you have to do that. So I'm here this morning to try to speak some truth and try to bless and grace you with what I think God is saying in a world like this. In just a moment, I'd like to pray with us as we would go. But can we just, we're not even going to stand. Just sort of settle in where you are for a moment. Get as still and as quiet as you can. See what happens. Maybe God can penetrate that. who invaded a world one day in flesh and blood, Jesus. May this God invade the I world for you. And may you be gifted by the awareness of his presence with you on this day. And may your life be centered in him so that you may truly live. God bless you and be with you on this day. Amen.